Christy Bilbrey. Right after college, I started my career in the Senate press office and then the White House. For the next seven years, I worked in corporate marketing before starting my own business. As soon as I did, the one thing I realized that none of those experiences taught me was how to market myself. Promoting yourself can mess with your head. Discovering brand storytelling and learning how to put it to work in my messaging saved my business. Once I learned this, I started teaching other business owners how to put it to work in their business as well. I created the Business That Story Built podcast to help strengthen the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we tell others. Audiences crave the human side of businesses. They want to get to know you, follow you, and interact with you outside of the buying experience. This can be intimidating to say the least. If you're ready to take your mindset and your messaging to the next level, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining today. I'm really excited to have today's guest because he is an agency owner, and I always love when I get to talk to other agency owners, just the perspective that they offer, and you're going to find out he has very unique perspectives. So Today's guest is Mike Maynard. He is the managing director and CEO of the Napier Group, a $7 million PR and marketing agency for B2B technology companies. He believes that combining the measurement, accountability, and innovation that he learned as an engineer with a passion for communicating internationally means Napier can help clients achieve their marketing goals sooner. We will definitely be diving into those things. Napier's unique approach to campaign strategy designs in speed to campaigns from the outset, building integrated campaigns that focus on the important tactics, whether clients need to increase awareness, generate leads, or engage contacts to create opportunities. Mike acquired Napier in 2001 and acquired Peter Bush Communications and Arbonage Communication to grow the company to nearly 40 people today. Since that time, he has directed major PR and marketing campaigns for a wide range of global technology clients reaching over 30 European countries. He's actively involved in developing the PR and marketing industries and offers a unique blend of technical and marketing expertise. So Mike, thank you so much for joining today. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Christy. Yeah. So you have a very interesting background. You didn't study marketing and college, you studied engineering. And so I am very curious, what brought you into the PR and marketing world from engineering? Um, well, I'd love to say, you know, of course, uh, appearing on a podcast, I had this great career plan that I'd thought through. <laughs> um, and actually, it's completely untrue. It was just a, a sequence of, of uh, sort of happy accidents. So I started out designing electronic systems and I designed all sorts of things from, you know, radar systems to mixing mm. desks. Um, and uh, then I realized, actually, I wasn't that great as an engineer. I didn't really like all the the kind of getting stuff into production. I love the creativity, but I didn't like the getting stuff in production. And I love the discussing the technology. So I thought, what can I do where I can actually do the bit I like, the chatting about, you know, products and technology, um, but avoid the kind of really hard work that engineers have to do. Um, so I became a technical support engineer, so basically mm. technical sales. Um, and then from that, I um, looked at my career options um, and I was running uh, a technical support team in Europe for an American semiconductor company. And kind of the option was to go to the States. I mean, that was the, the career progression there. 
Um, and I decided I didn't want to do that. I love the UK too much. Um, so I moved into marketing because that was an alternative route and something I could do within the same company. So I loved the company mm. um, and, and did that. And then they sent me on a, um, a like a training course and we had a few drinks and someone said to me, do you know what? You should start your own company. And they're a very lovely person. I'm sure what they were saying was, Mike, you'd be a horrible person to, <laughs> to have to manage, you know, and I feel really sorry for your boss. But but they said this and I took it literally. Um, and then about uh, four weeks later, um, I found out that the founders of, my, of the agency I used were looking to sell. So I decided to buy the agency um, and bought the agency about a month before the dot-com crash, which was not oh. the best time to buy a tech agency. Okay. So that was your, that was kind of your entree into this world at a at a very challenging time. So, um, you know, with that, actually, that's a pretty good segue into the next question, which kind of gets into finding the right prospects. So you're in, you get into agency world in a difficult time, and obviously you need to start finding clients. So you have developed a process to really and I don't know if it stemmed from that experience and kind of survival mode or or just later on, but identifying the right prospects that matter, whether you're an agency, whether you're a brand, you know, whoever you are. So what is your what is your thought process for that? So I, I mean I could talk about two different things, but I'd rather talk about the agency side. I think that, that that's quite interesting. And then we can talk about the, the client side, because typically clients are slightly different. Um, you know, agencies are effectively selling a product, which is a relationship with people who are going to advise clients um, and do work for clients. And it's an incredibly close relationship. Um, and actually, the most important thing, I think, in agency business development is to turn down clients. Mm. Um, because there will be clients where you're not going to be the best agency in the world for that client. Sure. Um, or maybe not even the best agency in the state for that client. Mm. Um, and actually, the really good relationships are with clients where you can do stuff that pretty much no one else can. And that could be a combination of experience, expertise, you know, good chemistry. Um, all of these things all add up to make, you know, some agency relationships really, really good. Um, and, you know, you mentioned, I, I mentioned you, you commented on the this buying an agency just for the dot-com crash. When that happened... Um, you know, the only calls we're getting was people cancelling their contracts. I mean, that was uh, all that was happening. Yeah. Um, and we were taking on any clients at that time. And we took on some great clients and we took on some terrible clients. <laughs> um, and actually, the terrible clients didn't help us out. They lost us money. They took up time. They were painful. Nobody wanted to work on them because nobody really felt you know, super proud of, of what we're delivering because maybe we'd pitched a service that we didn't really deliver or, you know, perhaps that the client wasn't, um, you know, great in terms of someone to work with. All of these things meant it was difficult. So, um, and it, to be fair, it probably took us 10 years from the dot-com crash to realize that, that we need to be picky. And so you need to pick clients that are going to be a good fit. And I, I, I'm really excited because I can't say who it is because we haven't signed yet. But we've just been told we've won a client and we've been, you know, like looking at clients of where we want to go. And we go, who would you like to work with? This is the client. This is like oh, our perfect client in this particular sector. Um, and we we met them at a trade show and we had a number of pitches. And we are just like, this is brilliant. We want to work with them. The whole team is really stoked. Um, and that's completely different from a client where you go to a pitch and maybe they're a bit rude. They don't you know, necessarily value your opinion, you know, and you occasionally get clients like that. 
And realistically, what you've got to do is pick those good clients and really double down on them. And, and I believe if you, you work with those clients, actually you end up getting more revenue because the relationship's good, the work you deliver is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually that leads to more and more business. So that's kind of what we're doing. We're, and, and we're trying to be really picky about clients. Yeah, so it sounds like kind of a combination of, and we'll we'll talk more about the way that you kind of approach approach this, but good on paper in terms of this, this is an area where we want to focus and where we have the expertise, but also it sounds like that just gut instinct that in the meeting, you kind of get a sense of, is this going to be a good relationship? Yeah. And typically, I mean, with our, our business, cause we're working with um, B2B technology hardware mm-hmm. providers, they tend to be quite conservative. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're making things that if they break, things go horribly wrong. I mean, we literally worked with a company for a while that made fasteners that held wings onto aircraft. If that breaks, that's a real problem. So yes, it, it's quite a good thing that our clients are conservative with, with uh, what they do. So we don't tend to just have a pitch. We tend to have multiple meetings. We tend to have lots of emails. We tend to you know, have quite long sales cycles. Um, and we get a really good view of what that client's going to be like. Um, and we really, really focus down on the ones that we want to win. I was going to say, I read a great book once and I wish I could remember the book because there was this great quote in it um, where somebody who who worked for one of the big global agencies said they were losing all the pitches. Um, and, um, you know, they went to their biz dev team. Why are we losing all the pitches? They go, well, I don't understand it. You know, one of the best agencies in the world. And, you know, we're, we're putting effort into the the pitches. And, and somebody said, well, how much effort, you know, on a percentage scale? And they went, well, we're really busy because we get lots of inquiries. So, you know, I mean, probably 98, 99% effort. But, you know, given who we are, that's going to be enough. And actually, the answer is it's not. You win clients by putting 100% effort in because somebody will do that. Right. Um, And so if you don't, don't go all in. So fewer pitches, fewer opportunities, but focus on the ones where actually you're going to sit late at night and go, do you know what? I shouldn't really be working now, but I don't care because I desperately want to work with these guys. Yeah, I love that. And then you mentioned also that it it looks a little different on the client end. Would you briefly touch on, you know, what you recommend to clients in terms of identifying prospects that matter? So that's great because, I mean, one of the issues with agencies, it's a very personal relationship. And if Mm -hmm. you don't build a great personal relationship, actually the agency tends to find it hard to deliver great work. Um, That can be different if you're, you know, for example, I mean, we've got clients who manufacture silicon chips and pumps and, you know, there's not really that ongoing relationship. But actually, it's slightly different because if you look at where they're most successful um, and the clients that or the customers they help the most, if they focus down on those, they can sell more to that customer base. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, again, you know, we, we sometimes see customers who have a product and it's like, well, we designed it for this and it's perfect for this, but it could be used here, 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 and here, and here. And actually quite often those those peripheral um, applications are, are somewhat theoretical because mm. most of their customers know it's not really the ideal product. And yes, it could be used there, but maybe there's something better. Focus in on where that product really adds value um, and then try and communicate what that value is. Um, right. and so try and be really clear. And typically when, when clients do that, they go, yeah, well, absolutely. Everyone should use it here. It's obvious because of this, 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 and this. And when the customers see that, they go, well, I can I can now understand it. This makes a real difference to me. This guy understands my market. He understands what matters. Um, and so you get very, very positive, um, you know, responses from uh, to your marketing. Um, yeah. So definitely, I think focus on the good fit is, is great mm-hmm. advice always. I love it. I love it. And kind of following in that strategy vein, talking about 
tactics for marketing efforts and really trying to hone in on not doing everything, but finding what is the right fit. What's your what's your thought and your process for that? I I think it's, you know, check your ego at the door, basically. <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, I, I guess most people who come on the podcast, they talk about marketing, they'll say test. Test is the way mm -hmm. to go. Um, and particularly in digital, um, it's very easy and very straightforward to test. Um, and we have clients where different channels work really well. I mean, we've got clients where, you know, targeting people in specific roles in specific companies on LinkedIn is like, it's magic. It, mm -hmm. you know, almost these, these um, prospects, they can't resist engaging um, and you're hitting exactly the right people. We've got other clients that will run campaigns on LinkedIn and they just won't work. Um, and maybe, you know, they're better at getting leads through different approaches, you know, that could be either through paid search, or it could be PR, or it could be content marketing, or, you know, anything else. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can sometimes take a good guess. And, you know, a lot of our clients sell complex products that have complex decisions. Um, and, you know, content is clearly really important. It's a big part of what we do. And it really matters because the people making the decision need the information that they need to make the decision. So you've got to got to provide that content. Um, and so we might have a slightly different mix of tactics to someone who's selling, um, you know, consumables to the same customers, um, because it's a different purchase um, process. There's different concerns. So I think it's about trying to, you know, live in your, your customer's shoes or the end customer's shoes, and then really think about what what would work for them. And then try two or three hypotheses and some of them will work and some of them will fail. And, you know, the important thing is, is not to keep going with the ones that fail, but to, but right. to be humble and say, yeah, I was wrong there um, mm -hmm. and focus on the ones that work. Yeah. Very, very good. Love that. Something that the PR industry has struggled with, and I think they're frustrated with it. Clients are frustrated with it is measuring meaningful metrics for a little alliteration there. So what do you see as the most meaningful and quantifiable metrics that are helpful for clients that PR marketing agencies can actually provide today? That's, I, I mean, that's one of those questions that if I could really answer that well, I think, you know, I, I wouldn't be here. I'd be sitting on a <laughs> desert island because people would have paid me, me lots of money. I, I mean, I have a great trite answer for that. And and, and the really you know, like simplistic answer is, well, what you want to measure is what matters to the client. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, everyone goes, yeah, that's right. And then they look at it at me and go, but that doesn't answer the question. You know, I, how do we understand what matters to the client? How do we understand what matters to the client, particularly in terms of PR? And I think it, it it's about having a conversation with the client. And there's some frameworks um, so AMEC is um, an international organization that produces a framework to try and really get to the bottom of what matters. And we have clients that fundamentally they want to be seen as being big and being important in the industry. And they want to have coverage everywhere. They want everyone writing about them. And their you know, volume of press clippings actually can be a good metric. Mm -hmm. um, typically, volume is not a great metric, but sometimes it, it, it matters. Um, but we have other clients that have very specific needs. We had one client who said to us once, we've got a challenge for you. You need to get us into a major broadsheet newspaper in the UK. Um, and that's what we care about this quarter. And we looked at mm. them and went, <laughs> number one, why? Don't understand. Number two, you make data center floor planning software. Like the average newspaper probably doesn't even understand what that is. Nobody wants to read it. How are we going to do this? They go, it's your, your challenge. So anyway, 
we went away, we came up with an idea around careers and careers in uh, data centers and and mm. actually managed to get some great coverage for them. And, and they were delighted. And they were lovely about it. And they, you know, they genuinely appreciated how hard it was. So they, they were really kind when we got the coverage. Um, and then about three months later, they got acquired in a trade sale. Oh. And suddenly we're like, they want bankers to know who they are. Um, mm. And that was that was it. But of course, they couldn't tell us at the time. It wasn't something they wanted to discuss. Um, so I think what matters to the to the client can just be all over the shop. And so really having that discussion and spending the time um, is what's important in terms of, of getting those metrics rather than having, you know, one magic formula that, to be honest, probably doesn't really work for anyone. Mm-hmm. Well, something that I know you do like to dive in specifically to is account-based marketing. So maybe if you can just first kind of share a little bit about what that exactly is and then how you run uh, ABM campaigns. Oh, you've got me on my favorite topic, Chris. That's great. <laughs> so I hope everyone's sitting comfortably. I'm going to gonna get very excited about this. So, <laughs> I mean, account-based marketing, very simply, in my opinion, is very focused, good marketing. Mm -hmm. um, so what you're doing is you're taking generally a lot of the things you do normally in, in um, general marketing campaigns, but you're trying to focus down on very specific um, target accounts. Um, and people talk about account-based marketing as targeting sectors, targeting groups of companies or individual companies. I actually think sectors is a bit of a cop-out and we don't really call that account-based marketing. We just call that good marketing. Okay. Um, but account-based marketing, when when we look at it, is really about when you know specific companies you want to reach or you can identify specific companies. So, um, I, you know, a simple example um, in my world might be, um, you know, a client that makes semiconductors um, wants to sell into the automotive sector. Um, and in the automotive sector, there's, there's two groups of customers. One is the car manufacturers. Um, that actually is generally less of a big market. The other is the people who make electronic subsystems that go into cars. Um, and so if you want to sell electronics, quite often um, there's a very small number of companies that are going to make these subsystems, sell them to all the car manufacturers. And if you get these maybe three or four companies um, to all choose you over your competitors, you'll dominate the market. Yeah. So the argument is, why do mass marketing when there's only four mm -hmm. companies that make a difference? Sure. Um, and so that's what account-based marketing is in my view. Okay. Very, very specific. So on the other end of that spectrum, do you feel like taking a broad approach to marketing makes sense? And if so, when is that the right approach? Yeah. I mean, you know, whilst I love account-based marketing and the example I gave was very specific, um, you know, equally for our semiconductor companies, um, there are a lot of semiconductors that can be used in a huge range of applications. Um, and the industry uses this term of, of industrial. Um, and very crudely, industrial means everything else we haven't really listed as a specific market. And generally, that industrial market can be, you know, anything up to 50% of their potential market it can be more actually with some, some companies. So in that situation, you haven't got three or four companies that really move right. the needle. You've got, you know, 50,000 companies maybe that move the needle in Europe. Um, so there, absolutely, you should be doing much broader sort of, you know, mass marketing to try and reach that whole industry rather than trying to go to ABM. So whilst I love ABM and ABM is great in some situations, it's not a universal solution. Okay. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm just kind of curious what you see going on today. There's a lot of things changing today. 
what do you think of as being the top maybe two, three trends globally that are impacting PR and marketing to be aware of and take into account? That's that's super interesting. So I'm going to park AI for a minute because I feel like I'm going to have to mention that yeah. you know, almost required. But I, I think I'd like to talk about some other things first. Okay. Um, I think one of the interesting things that's happening is um, companies, and in our sector, particularly the business-to-business sector, um, companies are much more concerned about who they're buying from rather than necessarily mm-hmm. the product they're buying. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important from, you know, how how organizations treat their staff to, you know, if they're providing physical materials, how they're sourced, you know, mm-hmm. are you sourcing, um, you know, products where materials come from war zones or where child labor is used or, you know, maybe you're manufacturing stuff where child labor is, you know, all of that now is, I think, an area where it's gone from people being reluctant to using those sort of companies to absolutely companies not wanting to be anywhere near that kind of situation um and the great thing is is what's happened is that a lot of companies are actually preferring to buy from organizations they feel are doing good mm-hmm. um and so that can be you know anything from um you know how you look after your employees what you do to protect the environment etc cetera, etc cetera. people yeah. care about who they're buying from not just what they're buying um, and we've seen that for a while in consumers so um, it's it's really interesting to see that flow through to to B two B. I think there's a continual digitization, and it's very interesting. It's not really a trend; it's a battle between the technology and the demands for privacy. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, we see this continual. You know, technology pushes forward, and then regulation pushes privacy um, and reduces what technology can do. And I think I think that's an interesting thing that will continue for for some while. Um, and then we see you know, AI and uh, generative yeah. AI particularly. Right. And that's that that's interesting. Um I mean my favorite thing is um, you know, when when a group of us are talking about it is is just to say, well of course, you know, if you look at chat GPT, mm-hmm. all it's trying to do is predict what the average person would say next. I mean, that's literally how it works. I mean, as an engineer I can tell you literally it's trying to pre- predict the most likely word next. Mm-hmm. Um technically the most likely token, but it's basically approximates to a word. Um, so it's trying to do the average. Um, I look yeah. at people and I say, so as long as you're above average, you've got nothing to worry about. For now. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you look around and see who looks worried and, and you go, okay, you don't think you're above average. <laughs> but but no, in all seriousness, I think that there are limits to generative AI. Um, okay. And we've done some tests, for example, on blog posts. And I can tell you that if we run a blog post through generative AI and then get a writer to edit it, it generates about as much engagement as a graphic designer writing something. Interesting. Now, they're going to be wrong. That's really good. I, right. I, I, I say graphic designer because it's someone who doesn't write as a profession. <laughs> no offense to <laughs> you know? graphic designers listening. <laughs> you know, I, but we've had some, we had some blog posts from our graphic designers, which which was great. They don't write for a profession. Um, right. They don't tend to get quite as much engagement as as the people who are are you know on a writing team. So I mean, and that's understandable. Um, mm-hmm. So. You know, we found that actually ChatGPT with some editing will get to about that level, which which is super impressive. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean it's replacing people who are writing. Equally, I think if we look at, um, you know, short form content, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, something like Google Ads, creating Google Ads, ChatGPT is great for creating a lot of the basic ideas. Interesting. But I wouldn't trust ChatGPT to run a whole campaign yeah. because quite often it comes up with, you know, one or two poor headlines that you go... 
really don't want that there. Um, So I think it's definitely going to accelerate a lot of things. I don't necessarily see in marketing us having like an AI assistant as a a person, which I think some people have kind of imagined. Mm -hmm. What I see is little bits of AI pervading almost everything we do. Um, And so, you know, when you have a tool for generating Google ads, without doubt, there'll be an AI suggestions button on every tool um, because the suggestions are good. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think that's that's the way it's going. Um, it will be interesting to see if, if um, generative AI can write really, really good quality prose. But the challenge is, is again, it's it's basically trying to replicate what it's been trained on. Mm-hmm. So typically in marketing and PR, we're talking about something new. And so sometimes that that historical, you know, reuse historical ideas doesn't really work with something new. So I think I think, you know, certainly it's going to it's going to be part of our everyday lives. Some of it is, is you know, going to be automatic. We're not even going to think of it as AI. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't necessarily see people running, you know, entire campaigns through an AI. I don't see that happening at all. Yeah, it, it's just so fascinating to me how from November to now May, uh, I mean, that is just across industry. Everyone is trying to play with it, tinker with it and see. And then you know, obviously we've all seen the backlash and all the all the tech leaders that have said, hey, we got to be very, very careful with this. And even this week, uh, you know, Sam Alton going in front of Congress and there's just a lot, a lot of discussion. So we'll see, we'll see how regulation impacts this and how industry uses it. I, I do wonder whether like in five to 10 years time, there'll be MBA courses teaching one of the greatest marketing tactics of all time, which is Sam Altman saying, oh no, my product is so amazing. You're going to have to regulate it. It, Honestly, it's so (laughs) transformational. You're going to have to pass laws to limit how good it is. Um, Because I I think that there is an element of of promotion there. I mean, speaking as an engineer, Mm -hmm. one of the things that, that, there's two things that have happened with, um, uh, with, these these models so when they create the networks they made the networks very much bigger they've they've put far more layers into the networks um and actually as you add more layers you get diminishing returns Mm. um but you get pretty much um uh an increase in the computing power that you acquire so that actually what's happening is that they improve and increase um the size of the networks it's not going to go up exponentially it's going to go up much more slowly um, and then the other thing they've done is is they've basically trained um, these models on pretty much everything that's happened on uh, that's on the internet, the whole of Wikipedia in case the internet crawl didn't get it, and you know huge huge repositories of public domain books. We don't have any more content to train it on, so it's not going to get smarter by getting more data. So again, th- there are ways to improve the training, but we can't do it by throwing more and more content because there just isn't any more. Mm. Um, so I think you know those two things mean that we can't project this this massive step change we've seen to to out into the long term i think okay. that uh that ai is going to be something that that slows but it, it's still going to be massively massively important right right interesting something i think everybody is keeping tabs on no matter what industry they're they're in well selfishly while i have you on since you have been an agency owner for years. I have some questions of mine that uh, I would love to ask you early on. And I know you came into this at a difficult time. What was it that you feel like you did with your agency 
that shifted the biggest impact to grow? That's a great question, Christy, but I'm going to change it. So when I, I bought Napier, the agency, the, the market was collapsing. Um, we were a tech agency and, you know, newspapers were talking about the dot-com crash. So actually, initially, what I did was try and stop the agency shrinking too much um, and, mm -hmm. and frankly dying. Mm -hmm. um, and the answer to that sounds very simple, um, but it's really true. We just did everything we could to look after clients. Um, and I think valuing clients and wanting to work with them is really important because you will actually go that extra mile to try and do things for them. And, um, you know, that's again, goes back to this picking a client you want to work with because it becomes mm -hmm. so much easier to look after them. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's, I like that's mostly a, a mindset. Do you feel like there was a, a team member that you added who helped free up more of your time or ability to focus on what you felt like was most important? And if so, what, who was that for you? There certainly wasn't an individual. There were lots of people who at different times came in. Um, I think one of the things we did wrong as an agency is because we had such a traumatic start mm -hmm. um, and, you know, literally I, I bought this agency, I was massively in debt and I didn't know, you know, in some ways you felt like, I don't know if the agency is going to be around tomorrow um so we became very cautious um and in a number of ways became cautious and one of the things we did I think very wrong was we didn't hire ahead of what we needed mm. um and I think hiring people before you really really need them in an agency actually really reaps benefits and particularly with some of the more senior hires and some of the more you know key hires I'd say that that was something for at least 10 years we did wrong um and probably even sometimes today don't do it right mm -hmm. okay well that's I appreciate the honesty that's I know that's something where it's very tricky to figure out where to invest and what's going to provide the most the most impact so and you won't know you've got to guess I, I you yeah. know you you can make an educated guess but I think mm -hmm. being prepared to take a few risks Mm -hmm. actually the risks are generally the risk of hiring someone is generally less than the risk of not hiring somebody so I think being prepared to make that investment is an important thing to do Definitely. and and that would apply not just to agencies but you know brands brands as well to really I, I think it's true of everybody mm -hmm. um you know and and hiring really good people is always hard mm -hmm. it's always hard to hire really good people it always takes longer than you, than you think if you hire in haste you quite often don't get the best person yeah. um so being hiring in advance of your need means you can take more time. And I think that's that's a, that's an important thing to remember. It's not just getting the person in early, but it's also having the time to really find the right person. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. So do you have any final piece of advice that you want to offer on any of the wide-ranging topics that we've discussed today? Well, final piece of advice. Um, don't run an agency. It's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> um i i think um i think the one the one thing i heard um and i know this is this is somewhat a cliche but i think it applies incredibly well to marketing and and, and communications agencies is that ideas are easy execution is difficult mm. um and actually a lot of people think coming up with ideas is really the challenge but generally speaking, it's about putting them into practice that really is the hard thing. 
um, and finding people who can take ideas, put them into practice and make them work. I mean, they are so valuable at every stage of agency development. So um, I guess that's the one bit of advice I could I could leave. Yeah, thank you. And I have a couple of links where people can find you at Napier B2B, and that's the number two dot com and marketing B2B tech dot Napier B2B.com. I know that's a little bit longer. Those will be in the show notes for anybody who wants to go there. Is there anywhere else where people can find you, connect with you? Yeah, well, the second one's our podcast. So obviously, if people are interested in B2B technology marketing, then come and listen to the podcast. If you're into consumer, probably don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> um, but you know, if anyone has any questions or or would just like to get hold of me, I mean, the easiest thing is just to email me. Um, most people can probably guess my email is mike at napierb2b.com. Um, so I'm very happy for people to do that if they want. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Mike, today for coming on today and everything you shared. Thanks so much for having me as a guest, Christy. Absolutely. Thanks to everyone for listening. Until next time. To succeed in business, you need brand awareness, authority, and trust. To get those, you need visibility. Podcasts offer each of these. It's a unicorn platform because it gives you the scarcest resource in digital marketing, attention. Did you know that 80% of podcast audiences listen to the entire episode and more than 50% consider buying from a brand or individual that they discover on a podcast? Building your own show and audience takes years. Grow faster by guest speaking on other podcasts to get more leads, build your SEO and strengthen your brand. To learn how my agency can help, email me at hello at christybilbury.com.